You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. And so I had a really different, and it was just what I knew. You know, I didn't know that I was growing up in paradise at the time. I just thought I had access to cool beaches, I guess. You know, that was, that was the perspective then. Uh, and here I am now. Uh, I've moved around a lot, so I went to college in Los Angeles, and that's where I studied music. It was a classical program sang opera and art songs for four years, really learned um, the ropes of classical music. And uh, have always found myself after that, because of a call to ministry that happened for me in the 10th grade, kind of straddling these worlds of music and worship in local churches. Married uh, my wife, Abby. We've now been married for almost 20 years. We have four kids that are 15, 13, 10, and 9. Boy, 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 girl. Joel, Jesse, Brody, Bronwyn. So a princess and a herd. Um, and that's us in a nutshell. The Lord's called us to Advent. We've been here for three years now. I'm really happy to be here. feel like there's a lot of energy around the ministry of the gospel in this place. And I love talking particularly about worship and liturgy. It's just, it's my area. I've been a music leader and a pastor for about 15 years professionally and beyond that more. And a lot of what I try to think about is how people are formed by this experience that we call worship service on Sunday morning. And so what I love jamming on is the way that you and I, um, as we come into worship services and as we experience them, as we experience their ruts and their grooves and their patterns, how the gospel is formed in us in such a way that it actually makes us ongoingly repentant in the best of way, kind of how, how does Christian growth occur? Hopefully you've heard this before, but Christian growth occurs to going back to and more deeply into the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. We don't sort of receive it and then move on from it in our discipleship, but discipleship is sort of one journey. And I think that worship um, in the prayer book tradition especially is a way of journeying in that gospel. And so I want to talk about that briefly. I want to teach for a little bit and then I want to open it up for uh, our discussion of a particular passage in John, but I want to start by outlining uh, something in particular because usually, and by the way, I'm I, I'm aware. I don't know if you all have been in other churches. It tends to be that worship services are lightning rods of controversy, um, and so I'm used to being in in contexts where the person in my position, al- alongside the lead pastor or the dean or the senior pastor, whatever you call the sort of minister in charge, receive lots of uh, lots of valuable feedback from people. Um, and I'm, I'm used to it. I welcome it, actually, because worship's really important. And it summons all of us. So I'd expect that all of us would be stirred when things happen in and around worship. But what I found is that when we talk about worship, we often talk past each other because we don't recognize what I'm about to show you, which is kind of the biblical spheres of, of ways of describing what it is. And there's kind of three, uh, three sort of concentric circles. And uh, the first circle is basically just worship in general. And though the Bible has a lot of different words, both Greek and Hebrew, for the word worship that don't always get translated worship in English, um, one of the things that we observe when we read the scriptures about this is that you and I, at our most fundamental level, were designed to adore and give glory to God. So when God created us, every creature sort of had a natural wiring that we were we uh, were built to orient ourselves in adoration, respect, and worship of someone or something. 
And prior to the fall, all that glory of the entire creation, for the created order, but pinnacling in humanity was directed toward God. Then after the fall, we could say that one great single description of sin is sin is misdirected, misaimed worship. The root of, of all our sinful actions, which is oftentimes where churches reside, is what you're doing wrong is a heart that's been misdirected. And so we could say when we are acting out in sin, it's a sign that our heart's aimer is off. And one of the things I think that a worship service exists to do, getting a little bit ahead, is actually to help us as human beings in Christ to re-aim our worship where we've been designed because we've sort of beamed it in all sorts of different directions. But this idea that, that a human being is inherently a worshiping being, I don't know how you can refute it. You don't have to read one word of scripture or be a Christian to affirm that somehow, because of what we truly love, truly attribute power and glory to, whatever that is, we're going to sort of orient our whole lives towards it. And it really doesn't matter. This is one of the things I love about personality tests, and especially if you all have heard of the Enneagram, maybe for some of you it's witchcraft. But one of the things that I've sort of uh, been personally helped by with the Enneagram is a knowledge of what's underneath the hood of my actions, which is where my heart's really aiming. Um, and that's the idea that worship for Christian, non-Christian, is just a state of being. You and I are worshiping somewhere. And in, in a way, the, the Christian enterprise, the, the enterprise that God calls us when he calls us out of darkness and into light through Jesus, is a factory recall of broken worshipers. That's what idolatry is, is broken worship. And God's in, in Christ is, is issuing a worldwide factory recall of worshipers to re-aim our worship at the only object of our worship that can truly satisfy what all our worship is driving toward. And you can analyze this anyway. I, I don't care if the kid is two or the person is 98 years old. Anywhere, if you observe their life, you're going to find out very quickly what fount they worship at. And the idea of this is that it, it our worship governs everything we do. And, and that's the sort of central point. Inside that sphere of the worship of humanity and glorifying whatever is, um, is what we call Christian worship. And this is where we start to get a little hazy when we talk past each other. Because what this really is, if we open the Bible to a place like Romans 12.1, where after it explains the gospel in 11 chapters, it goes on to say, say, Therefore, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable. This is your spiritual form of worship. And it's saying that not just of Sunday morning, not just of Sunday evening, but your whole life. It says, now that... Christ has given himself to you. You are freed to lay yourself down in glory of God and in love of your neighbor. And that's worship. So when we have been factory recalled and the Lord has proclaimed and continues to proclaim the gospel to us, who Jesus is and what he's done, the, re- the net effect and the result is that we are reoriented toward worshiping God with our whole life. Now, this challenges a lot of cultural Christianity's assumption that Worship is merely checking a Sunday morning box. God says, no, no, no. When I capture your heart, actually your whole life's reoriented, Monday through Saturday. That means that your vocations, your jobs, your raising of your children, your raising of your grandchildren, the way you behave and operate out there has the opportunity to be reoriented toward the glory of God and toward the love of others. And that's worship too. 
And then inside that sphere, inside the sphere of all of our life being gathered up in worship of God, is this unique moment that we call often on Sundays, gathered Christian worship. Where we come together and we enact certain rituals, prayers, receiving communion, preaching, um, singing together. We enact these rituals in a way to, in a, in a, what I would describe as a ritualized form of this. Because if you notice in our prayer book liturgy, it's guiding us through a story. And that story is our sin and God's salvation. And in a way, all this life here lived unto glory to God is one walking through that repentance over and over again. And so when we gather on Sunday mornings, we gather in a way to engage in what is kind of like a distilled form of all of life. If all of your life is to be given to God in this cycle of confessing and repenting and loving others, then a worship service is really trying to put that in a small digestible package that we experience again. And in a way, it's to help forgetful Christians remember who they are. I will tell you that one of the reasons that attendance in worship is important is not because God will zap you if you don't. It's because it's your lifeline to remembering who you really are. Because the reality is, when we step outside gathered Christian worship, we hear messaging, we have forces, and the forces have been historically called by the church, sin, the flesh, and the devil. We hear those in our baptismal rite and vows. Um, those forces are always wanting to detune our hearts to sing the praise of another rather than God, which is why I love the hymn. Come thou fount of every blessing, because it reminds me as a guitarist of something I see every week, where if I leave my guitar on the rack, it goes out of tune. I don't even play it. It goes out of tune. I need, it's the first time I pick it up after a week, it needs to be tuned up again. Worship, in a way, is tuning our hearts again to orient toward the chord of Jesus. It's to be able to play and sing the voice of who Jesus is and what he's done, as opposed to all the other songs that culture tells us we need to sing. Um, and so when we come, it's, it's to remind you of who you are. It's to remind you of your identity. And I guess the question with regards to attendance downstream is, uh, do you want to be in a place in your own walk with Jesus where you're prone to forgetting who you are? Do you want to be in a place? It's, it's sort of the spiritual equivalent of missing a meal and saying, I just eat meals, uh, you know, once a day or once every other day. Uh, why would we want to do that when we know that the sustenance we find in gathered Christian worship, which really can't be replicated anywhere else, there's some unique gifts and graces that God has for us in his word and in the sacraments that he gives there, that he gives nowhere else. It's, it's, kind of like, it's not even an issue maybe of legalism as much as it is of survival. <laughs> I, I come to church to survive. I come to church to hear the word of God, to be with his people, to remember who I am and to be renewed in this gospel. And so sometimes when we talk about worship, some people are meaning this, all of life worship, and some people are meaning this. And sometimes people act as though they're interchangeable or replaceable. And I find this diagram helpful to, for us to understand the nature of our existence before the Lord as a worshipful existence, how it's oriented through Christ, particularly to God, and then how it's enacted through the unique experience of gathering on Sunday mornings. So I want to talk about the value of worship in the prayer book tradition. Um, it's, been, it's been really important to me. I didn't grow up with it. I came to it from the outside. It's been something that I've studied and served in for a long time now. 
Um, writing a doctoral dissertation all on this, and I'm kind of sick of it, actually. Uh, actually not, no. I'm energized by it, and it's my life, because what I'm observing is the power of the gospel through a liturgy that we've been given. Um, and one of the things, I think there are three things to point out about why worship in the prayer book tradition is valuable. And I don't know where some of you come from, where you come, whether you come from a prayer book tradition in a different church, or a liturgical tradition of another tradition, or something like that. Uh, but what I find valuable about this one is, number one, that it's historic. And that's not a sufficient reason. I don't think we should do something just because the church has always done it. But it's, it's a, a component of the reasoning of why it's valuable. And I want you to think of it this way. In our creed and in the Bible that it's based on, we confess that I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the universal church, and the communion of saints. What we mean by communion of saints is that when I gather for worship with the people of God, I recognize I'm part of a community that's well beyond what I see with my eyes right here. I'm part of a community that transcends time and space. One of the ways that we acknowledge that and enter into that stream of worship that's been going on for thousands of years is by utilizing things that aren't from our era. <laughs> when we when we engage in worship and liturgy from time past, what we're basically saying is I value the voice of the church as we have historically processed the scriptures and then out of hearing the word of God uh, created ways for us to worship God that are faithful to those scriptures. And in a way, the prayer book tradition is kind of this living, breathing um, concept of us entering into the stream of believers who have meditated on the scriptures and said, this is, this is how God leads us to worship. Uh, and so... Yes, the prayer book is not the Bible, but it is a gift of how previous generations have wrestled with the Bible and said, this is how we should worship, hearing this word. Um, and so I value the idea of us being able to recognize that we're part of a communion that's wider. Secondly, it's biblical. And what I mean by biblical in several ways. Number one, I think that the beauty of the prayer book tradition is in its in its packaging, it's trying to lead you in the center, the tip of the spear of the message of the scriptures, which is the person and work of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done, our sin and our need of salvation in what Jesus did for us by paying the price and what Jesus gave to us by giving us the righteousness that we could never have. In a way, the prayer book tradition is attempting to drive that home more than anything else. And that's what I'd say is, if you're new to the prayer book tradition or old, our ears should always be attuned, not so much to all the details, but to allow the details to constantly be driving us to that one theme of who Jesus is and what he's done. And there's a bad record of liturgical traditions getting obsessed over the details and actually losing Jesus. So it's really important to me as someone who cares about your walk with Jesus, that as we engage all these rituals, all these symbols, that they drive us toward seeing and savoring Jesus and drive us toward uh, the ends that Jesus would become more beautiful and believable to us. Which is why my hope is always, when we walk out of a worship service, and I know this is a bit exaggerated, my hope is always when we walk out of a worship service that there's only one exclamation on the lips of God's people. And it isn't, man, what a great, that was a great sermon. Or, oh, the choir's anthem was amazing. I loved that. Or, isn't the stained glass and, and uh, beautiful here? Or, isn't the liturgy remarkable? I love this language. I hope that the only thing on the lips of the people of God walking out of a service is, 
isn't Jesus a great Savior? Isn't Jesus beautiful? Because that's what they're all pointing to. And um, all these other things are meant to drive there. And insofar as we only look at them, they don't become windows, they become walls. And we end up looking at those walls instead of looking through them to the Christ that they're pointing to. And I believe that that's the idea of the prayer book being scriptural is that's always driving us there. And we can always downshift and downgrade into something else if we're not aware of that and listening for that, which is why we've given you or will be giving you the annotated leaflet, that document that kind of explains a lot of the details of our liturgy. And the aim isn't to sort of explain everything. It's actually to help you understand how each piece drives toward you hearing who Jesus is and what he's done. Have we gotten those yet, Fontaine, or are those coming? Zach, the, the little spiral bound thing in your welcome package that had the God's liturgy, Zach is the one who, who did that. Yeah, so... You got it on the first day. Or right. Whenever no, it's a it's eight and a half by eleven. It's spiral bound. It kind of sets the liturgy side by side explanations of the liturgy. It looks just like that. There we go. Show and tell. Um, I'd encourage you all to read that. It'll be a kind of manual for worship, not to get bogged down in it. But my hope is that it actually puts hearing aids into your ears, hearing aids to more clearly hear the gospel in our worship service. That's the purpose of it is to do that. The other way the prayer book is biblical, this is what I loved, is when Cranmer took the historic liturgy, Thomas Cranmer, who was a 16th century reformer, um, a figure that I've come to love and study a lot. When he, when he took the received liturgy and he translated it into English, he actually loaded it up with quotations and allusions to scripture that previously weren't there. It's estimated that worship in, in the prayer book uh, is upwards of two-thirds quotations or allusions to scripture. And that's remarkable that when we worship, the actual words that we use are words given from God and not our own invention. So the goal uh, is really to understand that worship in the prayer book tradition is biblical. And number three, it's practical. Kind of like what I was saying here. Um, If we understand that worship in the prayer book tradition, what we're doing on Sunday mornings is a distillation of all of our life, in a way it's trying to get at the essence of what it means to be a human being before the Lord, then it's the most practical thing ever because it's reminding you of who you are, not all the messaging out there, but it's telling you, oh, I forgot. This is who I am in Christ. Like that's the goal of what it should be doing. So what do I hope that you get out of our worship services? I said it already, that the words and symbols of what we do would drive you to one place, that it would drive you to Jesus, that it would cause you to see him, as I said, to be more beautiful and believable. Because I believe that that's the one thing, that's what that's the one thing that Paul in Romans 1 calls the power of God. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And even though you and I have been justified and are saved, there's also a sense in which you and I are are being saved until that day of glorification when God makes us anew and makes all things new. So we need these kinds of helps that press us in our discipleship to always go back to that good news. I like to think of them as, um, I like to think of the repetitive pattern of liturgy as ruts of righteousness a way you can translate Psalm 23. He leads me in paths of righteousness. He leads me in ruts of righteousness. And a rut is really valuable, especially when um, the dark nights of the soul come. 
you think about a well-worn path grooved in by hikers, uh, that path is easily traveled when you can see it. But what happens when the fog and the clouds cloud the ability to see ahead? You can't see the path as much as you can feel the edges of the path on your feet because of the way the ruts have been worn into it. And I like to think of the liturgy with its repetition of going through this repentance week in and week out as wearing grooves into your soul so that in the moment when the faith crisis comes and it will come again and again and again over the course of our lives, when we can't see clearly, we almost instinctively step in that path of the gospel and of repentance because our feet feel those well-worn grooves. It's almost where we go because we've always prayed that way. And that's the goal. uh, That's my passionate prayer for you all at the Advent is that you would discover, rediscover, or allow those grooves to be worn into your soul. And the final thing is, I had, before we go into this little bit of study and reflection, I love talking about this stuff. This just lights my fire. And so if you have questions about the liturgy or why we do anything we do, and I should probably make this clear too. Sometimes the perception is weird because I'm often what some people in our church call the guitar guy. Like they see me because I play guitar at our 11 uh, refectory service or at our five o'clock service and assume I'm, quote, just that guy. Uh, So my position as canon for liturgy and worship is to oversee the whole kit and caboodle. Uh, So I'm very interested in what we do in all arenas. Uh, In a way, I work very closely with Fred and Charles, who will oversee our our, uh, organ and choir music program on that side of things. And so I'm interested in the kind of universal expression of worship. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.